Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Suzanne Falter. Suzanne is an author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster who's published both fiction and nonfiction, as well as essays. Suzanne speaks about self-care and the transformational healing of crisis, especially in her own life after the death of her daughter, Teal. Suzanne's essays have appeared in O Magazine and the New York Times, for example. And her podcast is called Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women. Suzanne and I chat about self-care on this show, and we talk about the simplicity of it and getting back to basics. And it really is inspired through her daughter's lived journey and her example. So grab your drink of choice. Join us. You don't want to miss this episode. Welcome, Suzanne. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. This is great. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining me. So I wanted to chat with you today about self-care. I know you've had quite a bit of experience with healthcare providers and yourself in the healthcare space uh, personally Mm -hmm. as well. So can you just share with us a little bit about yourself? Can you tell us what transpired in 2012? Right. Okay. So in 2012, I was going through a major life transition. I I just uh, gotten out of a very difficult relationship and lost uh, the home I was living in, which I had just moved in, given up my apartment and moved into. Um, And my business ended. I closed my business because I was totally burned out. I was a driven, empty, striving workaholic with my values very much divorced from my heart and soul. And short on the heels of that experience, my daughter, Teal, who was 22, suddenly died. 
Mm. And uh, basically, I had dinner with her one night, and two hours later, she collapsed from a medically unexplainable cardiac arrest. And she was rushed to the emergency room. Somebody found her 15 minutes after her cardiac arrest. And because she had not had a heartbeat for 15 minutes, it was unclear if she would survive. So, you know, she was put on life support, basically, for about six days, at the end of which it was determined that her brain was too damaged and she really couldn't survive. So we had to end her life. During that time, I suddenly saw how broken my own life was and how lost I was. And I understood that her death was going to be some sort of a strange and shocking healing for me. And the reason that's important is because Teal had told me only the day before that the purpose of her life was to heal people. And she really wanted to be a healer. And she was a very wise and joyful person who put her whole heart and soul into everything she did. And while I was being a driven workaholic, (laughs) focused on the money, Teal was making a little money as a waitress and picking up her backpack and her travel guitar and heading off to an airport to see where she might go next and just picking a place on the departures board and going and having great adventures and singing. She was a blues singer and she would just sing and all these different sidewalks from, you know, Morocco to Thailand to Copenhagen. And she would drift in and drift out of my life in her very free-spirited way. And after her death, she left behind all these journals that very carefully uh, documented her sort of spiritual probings, her musings, and things she was learning about self-care. My self-care was non-existent at the time of her death. I didn't really, I thought it was like a massage every quarter. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and a vacation every two years, right? Yeah. So I didn't understand that it was about how you treat yourself, how you ask for help when you need it, where you keep your boundaries and whether you even do, understanding what your needs are, doing what you have to to get them, finding a place to develop some emotional capacity, shoring yourself up, getting grounded. These were things that I didn't really know much about. And um, that I discovered after Mm -hmm. her death. The other thing that happened uh, at the time of her death was because of the way she died, which was a, you know, a so-called gentle death in that she was kept alive on machines and really monitored right up to the end of her life. Her organs were donated. And she didn't leave a specific request, so we made the decision. And four people received her organs, including a young woman just a few years older who got her heart and her kidney. Mm -hmm. And I developed a relationship with that family in the years following. I met met, uh, Amara, her heart recipient, five years after she died. And her mother, Debbie, and I became super good friends and even had a little podcast, uh, Back to Happy, for a while. And, you know, I think the thing that I've really found um, in this reinvention of my life was how critically important self-care is and how very hard we are on ourselves. At that time, I had already been a 
successful self-help author and personal growth speaker. So this was kind of my jam. If I was going to do anything with this experience, it was going to be this. And um, pretty quickly after her death, maybe within a year, I was invited to speak to organ and transplantation uh, professionals about burnout, self-care, you know, what I was learning, and of course, the donor mom experience. So I began doing those talks as well, and that was actually extremely healing. I even got to speak to the team who did her transplant. I was wondering about that. Yeah, and they, they all came and were, were really touched because, of course, they had been involved with Teal's body at the end of her life, but you never know who these mm -hmm. people are that you're working on. And, and um, you know, the healing just has continued to ripple out. My son, interestingly, now, because of the nature of Teal's death, which has really never been explained, he became first an EMT because the EMTs were part of the whole picture. But then he became an autopsy tech. Oh. And he started really looking in people's bodies to understand what could have gone wrong. And now, you know, nine years later, we think she probably had uh, something called sudden unexpected death and epilepsy, SUDEP, because she was epileptic, though her epilepsy was very well controlled with drugs and she seldom had a seizure. Mm. You know, really unknowable, like I said, uh, Although, you know, some really top people in epilepsy have looked at her brain tissue and said they thought all they could guess was maybe it was a seizure that somehow, in a very rare and unusual circumstance, caused her heart to stop. So yeah. that's kind of the long and the short of it. Wow. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss, first of all. Thank uh, you. She sounds like an amazing person. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about the medical cause of her death right now, in a way, like listening to you speak about her, um, it sounds like she was living, like she already got it. Like she was living life very freely, very simply. She did what she wanted to do. She was following the path of least resistance, it sounded like, you know, and um, sometimes they say like sometimes uh, she was just kind of reaching her full alignment with her her soul, her being, right? And, I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you put it that way because I really was filled with a deep knowing uh, when I walked into her hospital room that first night that she was going to die and that this, it was supposed oh. to be this way. Yeah. I really was flooded with awareness that this was her path and I could, I could get on board or I could fight it. Right. And if I was going to fight it, it was going to be all about me. You know, I really, I really felt connected to her at, during that week in the hospital and also after her death and feel to this day reassured that this was meant to happen as a path between the two of us mm -hmm. and that I was meant to take on this, this job of her healing work. Because don't forget, I had just ended my other career as a marketing consultant and speaker, you know, less than a month before. Wow. I had no job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, she's like, yeah, honestly, her life was really an example. And it was so interesting how you were opposites in that sense of her just yeah. living very freely and you were just, you know, doing the grind, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just so uh, like contrast, but beautiful at the same time. Yeah. And now you continue to be an extension of, of her, which is amazing. Um, so how did you then go from 
healing in the sense of being a workaholic, to put it simply, to feeling more fulfilled, more balanced in your in your everyday life? Well, my process was to become, you know, I just really simplified everything. And uh, after her death, I didn't even have a place to live. So I just found a room to rent in a nice house. And the people there gave me some space. And that was pretty good for the first year. And and then um, uh, another relative died who I inherited a little money from. Not a lot, but enough to get along for another year without working. And um, I ended up going to Paris uh, because a friend had found me a really inexpensive, nice place to live, another room in someone's apartment. And I just kind of lived this very, like, teal-esque. Right. Yes, totally. I love it. um, It was great. I spent a couple of months in Paris just living like a Parisian, working on my French and being as venturous as I could be because that's what Teal did. In fact, one of the last times we saw each other was in Paris where she was uh, working. She was working on a farm um, in Northern France and I came into the city on my way somewhere else and she spent a weekend with me. And, um, you know, it was just like, okay, I'm just going to do that. And it was so great. And it was so healing. And I came back feeling more confident, more grounded in myself. And a lot of my quest that I went through during this period was trying to get back to who I knew myself to be Mm. and what I had lost in the process of being that driven workaholic was my values. Mm -hmm. All I cared about was making the money, you know, and doing whatever it took, pushing whoever I needed to push, working my agenda wherever I could. And now I had no agenda. Life had, you know, kicked me off the cliff, basically. Mm -hmm. And I, I was left with all this time to think. And what I thought was, I never want to do that work again. I don't care about it. It's not what I'm supposed to doing it do and I know it Mm -hmm. and the other interesting thing was I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing yeah that's what I was gonna say too it was just this unpinned experience right Right. where do you think for you personally and maybe us generally where do we lose our way from knowing like our from our sense of integrity like what is it that pulls us to that other side of just keeping up with you know, like worrying about money, worrying about um, just racing against the clock. Like, what, where do where do we start? Because we all do it, and I think we yeah. all slip into it, but then we get lost in it. We can't. We're, enc- we're enculturated to live this way, totally. And Teal, who really was out on the fringe, was not. Right. She, when she died uh, the day before her death, I said to her, she had just quit her job working on the street, uh, raising money for various nonprofit causes with a clipboard. San Francisco. And I said, um, uh, sweetheart, do you need some money? And she said, oh, no, I'm getting my last check pretty soon. I'm fine. I'm, I just bought groceries, she said. Well, after her death, I found out she had $2 in her bank account wow. and $2 in her wallet. She oh had my nothing. And she-, she had nothing. And she was, and it wasn't like a defensive mom, I don't want money. It was like, no, I'm good. My needs are met. It's fine. This was, this was her deal was simplicity. Mm -hmm. And, and my deal was complexity. You know, I needed a packed calendar. I just was moving every minute of the day. I didn't want to stop and feel 
I didn't, I had, I had left my marriage of 25 years, come out as a lesbian, moved from the East Coast to California. I had changed all these things. I suddenly was living in an apartment in the city when I'd been living in this big house in the country. I, everything changed. Wow. And, and I didn't want to feel those feelings. So I just got busier and busier and more and more intense. And then it all crashed. And I think the big takeaway, the, you know, to answer your question, the thing I learned was that you can simplify, and and I think we're seeing that in the post-pandemic culture now mm-hmm. with the great the great uh, resignation and all of this that is happening. We're seeing people are trading the rat race for more value and things that are less personally stressful. Mm-hmm. I've read some research that the greatest damage, you know, or or injury felt by people who are resigning is that their their bosses are difficult to work with and their jobs are poorly managed. Yeah. And I think this is a tremendous wake up call for everybody who feels their, you know, boundaries are violated, that they don't have enough support, that nobody really understands what they're going through at work. Just like it's a wake up call for all of these companies that have set up their structures to really move people around to work for them without really checking out how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that is the heart of self-care because the self-care I discovered after Teal's death was very much about letting go, tuning into myself and continuously asking myself, what do you need right now? Sometimes what I needed was to cry. Yes. Sometimes I needed a smoothie. Yes. Sometimes I needed to walk in a beautiful redwood forest. Sometimes I needed to call a friend. You know, it really varied. And and I also learned that it didn't really matter what it was as long as I got it. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, how you talked about value there, too, and what we need. Um, and essentially, I think the other thing, too, if I, if I can add, is feeling like being with our emotions. I, I think yeah. that we... We don't do that enough in healthcare, especially as providers, because we are going from one patient or client to the next. And these are stories we're hearing that are deeply impactful um, and we have to process them. And then we don't have the time, I guess, in a way to sit with our emotions around it as well, let alone processing what we're hearing and what we're seeing. that's right. right. That's right. There is actually something called referred trauma. And it is very big in healthcare, as it is with attorneys and, and people who work with criminals and so forth. It's like when you are processing crimes or injuries or, you know, you're absorbing the trauma to some degree that your patient or your you know, victim, et cetera, has gone through. Mm-hmm. And there's no avoiding it. And so everybody's got to have the hardened shell. And then you're left with all of this emotional sludge. Yeah. Wow. There has to be a way to discharge it. Yeah. And then what would you say is a way to discharge it or well, to release it? Yeah. One of my favorite things is there's a couple of ideas. One is to journal, to just get a big, fat spiral notebook and just take a pen and have at it. And mm-hmm. you can begin by answering the question, what do I need right now? Yeah. Or what do I need to let go of? Or what's bothering me? Something mm-hmm. simple. We don't have to write anything profound. Nobody will ever see it. It can be incoherent. It can be scribbled. It can make no sense. 
is just important to keep the pen moving and get it out. The other thing that I personally have found very helpful and I've since found research to back up is walking in the woods. Oh. You know, I found this beautiful little uh, grove of old redwood trees um, near where I was living. And I would go up there all the time and just sit among the trees and have, you know, what the Japanese call a tree bath mm -hmm. or a tree shop. And there is a belief that trees shed uh, little bits of energy that make us feel better. And there is clinical research that a 20 minute walk in nature is equivalent to a two hour walk in a city in terms of its impact on your central nervous system. Wow. And, yeah. and not many people would have two hours to uh, do that, right? To compare the two. <laughs> you, know, you can go to a local park. You don't yeah. have to go find the Redwood Grove. You yeah. know, you can go to a local park and just sit on a park bench and yeah. let yourself just, you know, get quiet. Yeah. I think the getting quiet has been one of the most healing things to me. And, and mind you, I also surrendered to what I was being shown and where I was being kind of pointed in, intuitively. I really kept thinking, you've got to go back to work. You've got to go back to that work you hate. You've got to earn mm -hmm. a living. What, what if you run out of money? I mean, it was a real risk, right? Absolutely. But the truth was, every time I tried, and I did several business launches, they all failed. One of them, I, I um, you know, put together a program. It was a re recreation of something I'd done before that had sold really well on the internet. And I put it out there gamely, and 16 people signed up, and it was expensive, so I'd made plenty of money on it. I thought, oh, phew, I'm so relieved. I went to bed, woke up the next morning, and everybody wanted refunds because the learning site that I had just had built for this had totally been hacked. And it kept getting hacked. For the next five days, we kept rebuilding it, and it kept getting hacked, and it got worse and worse till the webmaster's hard drive got taken down by the hackers. So I was like, okay. That's a sign? <laughs> That's a sign. I'm backing off. Oh, my and goodness. I, I was just so amazed that how clear the sign was that you are not supposed to do that work, period. And you knew it. You knew I it. I knew it, but so, I was so resistant. No, so exactly. So tell me, Suzanne, what do you say to the person then who is resistant in a way and is saying, you know, I have, you know, I have children I have to feed. I have bills I have to pay. I'm sure you get this question a lot. Um, and I know that, you know, these are one of the biggest um, uh, questions that people have. Well, how do I surrender in a way and do what I really want or what I need to do? But I've got all of these other obligations. You need support and you need a plan and you need to take it one day at a time. I mean, these are basics, right? So one of the things that really worked for me was to find a support group. I went into a recovery group. Uh, I had some addictive behaviors that really needed to be corrected and, and you know, just kind of gotten a handle on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the workaholism. Yeah. And I found other workaholics who could really help me understand this problem and deal with it. I also allowed myself to get coached and I hired a coach whose basic message to me was, you need to let go. You need to stop. You need to stop pushing. She could see, you know, she could see what I couldn't see. Right. Other, otherwise, I think the, the big thing I, I did 
was to meditate. And always in my meditation, I was getting messages about surrendering. And I didn't know what surrendering meant. So I would sit with what does surrendering mean? And finally, I just gave up and decided to not know what surrendering meant and not know where I was going and not know any of this. And what is really interesting is about two years after Teal died, almost to the day, a relative who I seldom connected with called me out of the blue, very wealthy guy. And he said, I would like you to start writing novels for me because I love the novel you published in, you know, 20 years earlier. And I want to have some fun. So let's write a novel together and I'll pay you. And so I was like, I have to think about that. (laughs) I I was ridiculous because the truth was, I was not sure I could produce a novel. I wasn't sure I could do anything. My gears had been stripped, you know. Right, yeah. But he was encouraging, and he said, give it a try. And I sat down, I did it, I wrote a really good book. And now I've written nine more for him, or I'm on the ninth one, actually. And um, it just has been this blessing, this incredible blessing, as I really focus on, on all of it. You know, sharing the healing message through the novel, sharing the healing message through my self-help work. You know, all of it has created this different, much more uh, value-driven, purpose-driven life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say more purpose-driven, right? Yeah, it really honors Teal's memory. Yes, Yes, exactly. I mean, she kind of laid it out in a way through her example. Yeah. So. You know, you, one of the questions you said is, what do I need? Is that something what, that we want to hear sometimes? Or is that sometimes a difficult thing to answer? Do you know what I mean? Often, oh, yeah, yeah. No, like I, I'm thinking no. almost intuitively. Like sometimes our intuition tells us what we need, but it's not always <laughs> like a good no, thing. Or good right. feeling thing. And, and for many of us, the answer is I have no idea what I need. What I need. Yeah. You know, I have no idea. Like, nobody's ever asked me, what do you need? Exactly. And it's a particularly for people in industries like caregiving or healthcare, where you are always focused externally. So, so if you don't know what you need, keep asking and keep okay. allowing yourself to not know. Don't get into a frustrated, you know, snit about it. The truth is you're out of practice. It's sort of like doing yoga. The first time you ever do yoga, it's a little like, whoa, what did I just do? And it can be stiff. You can be sort of sore. And then after five or six times, you start to feel fantastic. This is like that. This is a muscle that has to be built. And if you get a message about something you really don't want to do, but you know you need to do, then you start asking, help me figure out how to accomplish this. Okay. Who do I need to ask? Where do I need to go for support? What do I need to bring in for resources? These answers are available to you. Right. Okay. And so these are things that we would be meditating on, perhaps. Yeah. Or whatever. Journaling. Or journaling about. Journaling yeah. can be like for people who really hate meditating and can't sit still. Journaling is a great alternative. Yeah. Because you're when speaking you journal, to me. <laughs> yeah. When you journal, your hand is moving, and the thoughts. If you just keep your hand moving, the thoughts can come. The key is not to sit and evaluate what you're writing, not to worry about how it will happen, not to analyze the content, not to beat yourself up if you can't journal, if you can't figure out how to do it. For some people, they're more auditory, so they want to speak into a voice memo uh, app 
or a recorder of some kind, you know, just stream of consciousness. The, the key is that the information is always inside of us. We are built in perfect alignment from birth, but we let the stressors of life and the anxieties and the tensions and the responsibilities and the pressures really knock us out of alignment. And that's when we don't know what we need and we can't hear ourselves think. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, and I'm a journaler, like through and through. <laughs> I'm a, and I love to write. And you're right. I I find I just don't judge what I write. I just let the pen go. If I were to go back and look at some of my stuff, <laughs> you know, I'd be. Some I have looked back, and I sometimes wonder, like, oh my god, did I write that? You know, it just it's remarkable, really. You're you are transcending in a way. So tell us, what are the five? You speak about the five self care basics. Well, I'm very glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> I am referring to my book because, oh, you know, got to go into your book sometimes. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote the Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care for other driven workaholic women or even women who have kids and parents and, you know, spouse and community obligations and a job and they just have too many balls in the air because the basics are left behind. They're mm -hmm. forgotten. Understanding your needs, which we just talked about, is number one. But number two is setting boundaries. I had terrible boundaries at the time of Teal's death, primarily with myself. I pushed myself mm -hmm. to work on the weekends. I pushed my team to turn things around far more quickly than normal, average, breathing human beings could. You know. Mm -hmm. um, I let uh, clients push me around and make demands on me that were unreasonable just because they wanted to see if they could. This, this is where we have to learn how to say, no, I'm not available for that and not dissolve into uh, a bath of guilt every time that we say no. Mm -hmm. This is about strengthening our resolve to protect ourselves. And it really has to do with examining our internal conversation so we can be, as Kristen, Kristen Neff puts it, more self-compassionate. Number three would be to ask for help when you need it. Now, I did reference that, and I referenced how critically important other people in recovery were for, to help me understand all kinds of things, from how to use an Excel spreadsheet to organize my money and my time to how to, you know, really evaluate whether somebody was a good date or not. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Wow. These people became my lifelines, <laughs> I'm telling you. And, and a lot of them are, to this day, extremely good friends. Oh. You know, we all have, hopefully, somebody in our corner who's rooting for us. And if we don't, we need to get those people in our corner. And we do it by going out in the world and finding people who are aligned with what we're aligned with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love to hike. So I found this wonderful group of um, lesbian hiking people or queer hiking people. And, um, you know, that was really exciting to me to find other people who were like me, who liked to hike and wanted to go into the Sierras. And it was all new to me. I just got here. I didn't know how to do any of this. Yes. So, you know, that kind of thing has been super helpful. Uh, number four is to take action, of course. And taking action is, yeah, you get clear on what you need. You start to really build a plan, but then you actually do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you may need your support network to really, uh, you know, you may need to check in and bookend and say, hey, I'm about to go do this scary thing. I feel really vulnerable. 
can you just give me a word of encouragement? They'll be like, you've got this. You can do this and don't forget X, Y, Z. And then you go do it and you go back to them and you say, I did it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And finally, um, number five is to build these self-care habits into your day. So you, if you know you need 15 to 45 minutes of vigorous exercise every day, you make a time when that would really feel good. And it might be that it would be first thing in the morning, you're a morning person, it would just get your energy going and your blood circulating. Mm -hmm. It might be the getting into a pool at the end of the day after stressful work, just even for half an hour, 20 minutes, just kind of push the reset button. You know, what is it that would feel good and work for you? So building habits and putting them in your schedule. Very, very important. Yeah. And that's something I, I've i um, advised as well or recommended is putting yourself in your schedule and your own yeah. self-care essentially. And again, we in healthcare, we don't do that. So I've, I've asked other clinicians to start doing that. Um, and we all, like I know lately, especially I've been deviating from, <laughs> from putting my own lunch in there, for example, yeah. and working through we lunch. Lunch. Right, and I know. You, you yeah. know, as healthcare, a healthcare provider yourself, but the listeners know the cost of that when you don't do that. It's yeah. basic. You know, sometimes in hospitals and things, I've seen these harried doctors, and they're, you know, chugging caffeine, and they're like, you know, they look kind of exhausted, and it's stressful. Yeah, yeah oh, it is. Oh. Let's start <laughs> no worries. The boundaries thing is pretty interesting because um, in healthcare, we—I I know for me personally, again, I can't speak for everybody, but people I've chatted with, we can be people pleasers, right? Yeah. And you know, we want to serve, we want to help, and sometimes we do that at the expense of, again, forgetting about ourselves, putting ourselves last. Right. Let, like you kind of said, letting people push kind of their own agendas at times. Mm -hmm. They can be our own colleagues, not just, I'm not talking just patient provider, right? Um, so why are boundaries sometimes so hard to set, especially for women? We feel guilty. Number one reason is guilt, 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 guilt. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have this big Facebook group, the self-care group for extremely busy women. And I have asked, and there are 55,000 women in this group. Amazing. And when I ask... Yeah. They say, and it's like doing a survey. Yeah. And that is the number one reason people feel they can't stick to their boundaries. What would so and so say? I will be my grand my mother in law will disapprove of me. My boss will not give me the raise. You know, um, we fear the mm -hmm. repercussions and we feel guilty taking time for ourselves. We feel guilty taking that lunch. We feel guilty saying no. And so the boundaries become super porous mm -hmm. and pretty much non-existent. And if you ask somebody who is in management, they will tell you they want people to take their days off. They want people to, to claim their vacations. They want people to have an, an efficient uh, lunch hour and a good break because when you return, you're twice as productive. If you work through lunch, you think you're doing a good thing, but what you're doing is you're pushing your neural activity past its prime point, and you aren't getting as much done. Mm -hmm. You're actually less productive, even though you think you're being more productive. Yeah, and amplifying that over time, too. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, exactly. So how do you, again, I kind of hesitate to use the word how sometimes with this, <laughs> with where we're going in a way, because the how is where we get caught up in, right? Like, how do I, how do I follow my joy? How do I let go? How, how, how? Um, but really, we need to just sit with ourselves and let our kind of emotions and our integrity kind of guide us in a way. What would you say are signs that we are on the right track, that we are fulfilling our purpose-driven life rather than just work-driven? Well, for me, it was simple happiness. I mean, things started to really shift for me after I took the work writing fiction. Hmm. And I really started to notice, I mean, the beginning, it was rocky because I was really unsure if I still had it. I had a lot of negative mental chatter. Um, But as the months wore on, and I really dug into this book, I started to feel pretty good about it. And at the same time, I was feeling better and better about not working too much. I was feeling better and better about allowing myself to be in flow with every day and really tapping into kind of the universal flow. And, And I also felt myself relaxing and getting back to the things that I used to love as a child, I got back to my singing. Mm. I got back to, you know, certain creative things, the crafty things that I used to do when I was 10, 15, you know, 18 years old. These were things I hadn't touched in years and years and years. And and then um, I met the woman who is now my wife. And that was just, you know, very much the culmination of me returning to myself. That was like, for me, a universal sign. And I think if we look around at what's happening, we can tell what the state of our life is, because it will be reflected in the quality of people around us, the quality of those relationships, the level of contentment we have after a day of work. The, our ability to sleep well at night and feel like we're not processing anxieties. You know, we all have issues and we all have tensions we have to deal with and they don't always go away. Mm-hmm. But your ability to deal with them is where you can really see if your self-care is all right. It's in good yeah. shape. Yeah. Love that. So how do we, I saw that you wrote a book called Surrendering to Joy. Yes. Yeah, I saw, I, I was just really intrigued by that. So um, can you tell me more about that? Like I've been, I've been following this type of philosophy for a while now <laughs> in a way about surrendering to joy it for me more emotion like using my emotional guidance as well mm-hmm. so like can you talk to me more about that i'm, I'm quite curious yeah, surrendering to joy was a book i wrote of essays that i wrote immediately after teal's death because oh. there was this extraordinarily unusual experience at the time of her death where I felt shock, I felt fear, I felt terrible grief, I felt loss. But weirdly, Jennifer, I Mm -hmm. had these incredible moments of joy. And I couldn't explain it. It, I have since really researched this and found that joy comes up in sudden loss for people sometimes. And the joy was around who Teal had been in her life and really pride that I had been her mother and that I had gotten to be there for her all those years. You know, that's the thing. It's like there's joy 
all around us all the time, but we don't pay attention to it. We don't mm-hmm. notice it. We don't embrace it. We don't even see it. But when you have all of your gears stripped, like I did, yeah. you have no resistance to the very fiber of life. And that's where the joy is. And so I wrote these essays with the understanding that I was kind of writing my way through this process of that first year. And in it were, you know, things about grief and letting go and, and how moving it was and how extraordinary it was. And I really did my best to capture the essence of that fleeting, incredible joy. And, you know, I see that joy in the transplantation professionals that I work with who have the privilege of being there at the end of someone's life and seeing them give the ultimate gift of life. And on the other side, people who get to actually help someone start their life again. This young woman who got Teal's heart was living with a life vest in a rural town, Northern California, expecting at any moment she would have major heart failure and die. She'd had congestive heart failure from a virus for seven years. She had spent those seven years on the list, off the list, on the list, off the list, that pacemaker never worked well in her body. And finally, she really was dying. And they had, she had to have a heart. She became the person at the top of the list and in came Teal and she was all set and she's never looked back. And that young woman does EKGs for people. She's a cardio stenographer. Yeah, love that. You know, you touched on this in the beginning with your son as well, going into autopsy. I often find that people who've had um, a life experience you know, we, we stay in healthcare, let's say, right, as a professional or as the profession itself, but it really comes from that life altering experience um, that they end up getting into a profession like healthcare because they've, they know someone or they themselves have experienced something remarkable. Um, and I just find that so like thrilling for me. It's just so moving. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's great that you keep in contact with, um, the recipient, yeah. the mother of the recipient, because I really wish we could have done that with my dad's um, liver transplant. Like my dad had two liver transplants. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, the first one had failed, unfortunately, um, and then this, and then he was put on the top of the nationwide list in the the country because wow. he was he only had they they suspected he would have died in 24 hours how he, had he oh, not received goodness. yeah so then w- literally i was studying for an exam that night cuz i was still in school at the time and i was literally praying for a donor um, yeah. i mean you don't want to pray for someone's death right that's well, like, that's part of what when the, that's you know the what i'm saying yeah thing, right? yeah but i and, think but 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 you know that moment of being the donor and telling the recipient family, this was a gift to me, is right. a very, very big message here. Yeah. Yeah. And it really was a gift. Like it was a miracle that he got the liver um, and that he was able to live 11 more years. Oh, yes, it was complicated, great. but I mean, somebody like gave him 11 more years with us. And I just, I'm eternally grateful. So, yeah. And um, yeah, so I so appreciate you being here, Sue. So thank you so much. Can you tell our listeners where we can find more about your work, oh, your podcast? Sure. sure. I have a podcast called Self Care for Extremely Busy Women. And 
I hope folks will come check it out. Also, my writing, I have uh, 350 blog posts at this point. Oh. Up at Suzanne Falter, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-F, like Frank, A-L-T-E-R.com. And if you dig around on the site, you can also see Teal singing and all kinds of fun things. And uh, my book is The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care, which is available on Amazon, Target, places like that. Beautiful. Is your Facebook group open by chance? Oh, sure. Do people want to join it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's called the Self-Care Group for Extremely Busy Women. And you come in, it's a private group, but I let people in and awesome. just tell them uh, you heard me here and, and I'll, I'll uh, pass you right into the group. That'd be, Beautiful. That'd be great to meet your uh, listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much, Suzanne, again. It was such oh, a joy yeah. talking to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jen. Take care. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jennifergeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.